Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Christmas. Uh, it's crazy to think that the next time I see you, I will have said, I hope you had a Merry Christmas. Uh, next, next week, we look forward to opening the scriptures again from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and I invite you to turn your Bibles right now to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be looking at Matthew ver- chapter 1, beginning at verse 18 this morning. As you do that, just a couple of quick uh, reminders of, or, or kind of heads up things uh, to go along with what Pastor Tom already shared. Um, the first one is this. Um, as elders, we have just a privilege to gather uh, every month. Uh, we, we actually combined our November-December meetings into one due to various things. But this last week, we met and we prayed for our church, and we prayed uh, specifically for some families going through certain things, and we just counted a privilege to pray for you and to support you however we can in your walk with Jesus. And so if there's any way specifically we can pray for you as elders, we'd love to be able to do that. I also want to just say um, thank you to so many of you who, who I've seen from like, just, just from the, the walkings and stuff that I do, like, like you, you've stepped in, church family, to caring for people really well. I, I know of several people within our congregation who have seen needs that I didn't know about until they were already met. And I just want to say thank you for being the body of Christ um, in a very practical way. Um, be a blessing uh, because you are a blessing uh, for the Lord's glory. Um, I also wanted to give you a brief update on our pastoral search process, looking for a youth and discipleship pastor. Um, we had a kind of a slow beginning of getting various uh, resumes to come in. Uh, in the last uh, recent couple weeks here, we've expanded some of our parameters and we're continuing that search. And, and for whatever reason, this week and just last week have been a flood of I guess, yeah, today is Sunday. So this week and last week have been a flood of resumes. And so I, w- I would ask this, that you would um, give, pray for wisdom for our team as we seek to filter these properly. Uh, I was getting resumes on Thursday and on Friday. got some last Sunday and Monday. And so I just pray for God's wisdom as we seek the next right pastor for our church to care for our students and families and for discipleship needs here within our congregation as a whole. Um, lastly, I already told you, but Merry Christmas. Um, I recognize that for some, Christmas is both a time of joy because you get to see family, uh, but it can also be a time of sorrow because you've lost family or you've lost friends or you can't be with family or friends. I just want to say, wherever you find yourself over the course of these next several days as we enter the celebration of Christmas, remember this. Christmas is not defined by a feeling or a season. There, there's certain things we do to help bring in the season, like, like sing about the birth of the Messiah, Jesus. Uh, gather with, you know, eggnog if that's your thing, or cookies if that's your thing. Uh, but Christmas is not defined by feeling or season. It's a reminder that God has come to step into humanity. And not that he has come, that he did come to step into humanity. And to engage the onslaught of evil in our world, the only way it could be done with his death and his resurrection. 
We, we celebrate Christmas knowing that whether we're in joy or whether we are in sorrow, we have this joy of the journey of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord, uh, and living for him is one of the greatest things we can ever, ever do and purpose our lives towards. In fact, it is the greatest thing. And so um, all of us, I believe this firmly, are going to be given kingdom moments over the next couple weeks here. Uh, you might be gathering with family. You might be sending cards during the season. I just want to encourage you, speak Christ every chance the Lord gives you into the lives of the people who you engage with over the next couple weeks. Uh, th- this may be some of those times that God says, here is this aunt, uncle, cousin, grandparent, parent, neighbor, sister, brother, friend, coworker. Here is them in your life. This is an incredible time to speak God's truth into their life and to let them know that they're loved by God and that they're loved by you. What an incredible gift we've been given. Um, we're going to look at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. And we're looking kind of at the story of the Christmas narrative from Matthew's perspective. La- last week I talked about how there's differences between Luke's Gospel, John's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, and Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel focuses on a genealogy, right? Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah and all of his people, and it just goes on from there. We talked about the importance of what does it mean to be a son of David and a son of Abraham. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at what the narrative does because it zeroes in in Matthew's gospel and it looks at Joseph. All right? Luke's gospel looks at Mary. We love Mary. We love the story that God tells and does and works through her. We're not going to look at her story today. We're going to look at Joseph's story today. But Mary is integrally uh, mixed in with this story. We're going to look at this story, and Mark, or Matthew's gospel uh, begins this way when it begins to tell of the story. After all these genealogies, we come to verse 18, and I invite you to stand with me right now for the scripture reading. These are the words of the Lord. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her publicly, he decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. To take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph got up from sleeping, He did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but he did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Father, we thank you for these words, words of life, words of truth, words that show and demonstrate how you came to dwell amongst us, how you stepped into our world with all of its brokenness and all of its rebellion against you, And God, you stepped into that world to make things right and to make a way back to the Father. Jesus, we are thankful this morning 
that there is no other way by which we can be saved but by your name, through your death and your resurrection. We stand on that truth and that hope even as we long for your return. We pray in Jesus' name. Together we say, amen. Please be seated. So we are looking this morning at Joseph's story, and it's interesting because Joseph is called righteous in this text. I don't want you to miss this. Um, When Joseph is described in chapter 1 in verse 19, it says, So her husband Joseph being a righteous man. Now what does it mean to be righteous? I want to focus in on this for our time today. What does it mean to be righteous? What does it look like? Uh, When I was a kid, I, I probably would have thought righteousness is never messing up. Always doing everything perfectly right. If you're confronted by someone, you're like, no, I'm always in the right. I'm always doing what is just. Joseph is described here as righteous. And it's even before the angel comes to him. Joseph, being a righteous man. What does it mean to be righteous? Here's how I wanted to define righteous for us. Righteous means obeying God's call even when it goes beyond human common sense. All right? Righteous looks like this. Obeying God's call, obeying his command, obeying his word, even when it goes beyond human common sense. The word righteous here, it's the word in Greek, dikaios. Can you say dikaios? Dikaios. Okay, it means righteous. It means just. Um, It comes, or it's related to this Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word is, um, uh, the Hebrew word, I should know, tzadik. Sorry. Tzadik. Can you say tzadik? All right, if you were to spell that, it would go T-Z-A-D-D-I-Q. It's a weird kind of thing. Tzadik. Um, The word righteous in Hebrew means um, just, innocent, in the right, upright, devout, godly. These words are used all throughout Scripture in a number of different places. For example, in Genesis chapter 6, Noah is described as a righteous person. It says Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. But then it says this, it says Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. One of the markers I think that, that, that the writer of Genesis is getting at is that righteousness is looked like by walking with God. I love it. For those of you who are new, that is our, this happens to me every day and it always surprises me. My alarm goes off, 10 a.m. hits, and it's just a reminder in the midst of everything to be still, to pray, and to acknowledge God's goodness or to pray for someone, and I just want to do that with you today. God, we thank you that even as many of our phones and alarms go off at 10 a.m. each day, we can just hit pause, and we can say, God, here we are. Father, we pray for people in our community going through great struggle. We pray, God, that you'd meet them in their greatest hour of needs and show yourself to be faithful. Father, we pray for our families as we get ready to celebrate Christmas this week. We pray for safety. God, we also pray that you would give us opportunity to speak the name and the life of Jesus into the people whom we love so dearly. Some of them are walking far from you, God, and and I pray that this Christmas they would hear that they are loved 
unconditionally, not because of anything they have done. They're loved simply because they've been made in your image. And God, that you want to meet them. You want to reveal yourself to them. And God, would you do that? Would you use us to further your kingdom in the lives of these family and friends? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Thanks for praying with me. Sorry, 10 a.m. hits. Gotta pray. Um, righteous, all right? Dikaios, Tzadik, getting back into it. Oh yeah, Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in all that he does. He walks with God. I think one of the things Scripture is getting at when it describes him as righteous, it's not saying that he's perfect, because we know he's not perfect from the humanity, uh, humanity sense, because Scripture also says that there is no one righteous, no, not one, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I think what he's zeroing in on, the writer, is he's saying, Noah walks with God, which means when you look at his life, he looks holy. Not because of anything he does, although that's part of it, but because he's walking with God and he's hearing God's voice and he's obeying God. Like when God says, Noah, I want you to build a boat. He goes, okay, I'll spend the next however many years of my life, even though this doesn't make common sense. And God, I will listen and I will obey. That's what righteousness looks like. It's not the only time in which the word righteous is used. In fact, one of the best times I think when the word righteous or just is used is in um, Revelation 15. And this word is often used to describe the actions of God. And it describes the actions of God because righteousness or justice comes from the very character of God. In Revelation 15, which we will look at this passage in its fullness this next year when we study Revelation, it says this, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And they say this, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty, just or righteous and true are your ways, O king of the nations. Joseph is called righteous. And he's called righteous even before God's visit. So there's something about this kid. This is a kid, he's probably 18 to 20 years old. And he's getting ready to be married to Mary, who's probably 12 to 14 years old. Any 18 to 20 year old young men in this room? All right, 18 to 20 year old young men, okay, no. Uh, how many 12 to 14 young ladies? All right, 12 to 14 young ladies, you'd be getting ready to get married. Actually, according to Jewish custom, you would already be married in this case. Mary is married when this, when this story starts, which is why this becomes really sticky really quickly. Um, to understand what's going on and why Joseph is acting righteously in the midst of all of this, the story starts by saying this, the birth of Jesus came about in this way, after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, is the way mine translates it, it says it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. In the ancient period, there was a multi-stage marriage, all right? Here's the way it went. What would happen is the, typically the groom would go to the father of the bride-to-be. And he would go to them, and they would say, could I marry your daughter? Now, he goes also with the blessing of his family. And he goes, can I marry your daughter? And the father of the bride-to-be would say either yes or no. But a part of that, they would agree on a, a reverse dowry is what it's called. It's called a mohar in Hebrew. And what this does is the groom's family would basically give this gift in order to replace the loss of the girl within the family. In the ancient period, I read this stat a couple years back, I can't remember where it was, uh, but it took four people working to feed five people. 
Just think about that. I've got five people in my family. It means that I would have to work, my wife would work, my son would work, my daughter would work, my youngest would kind of get off scot-free for a couple years. Um, But it means four of us would have to work in the ancient period to feed five people. The loss of a person within a family community, even to marriage, while it was a joyous thing, was a loss. And so they had this reverse dowry that would compensate the family for this loss of a daughter, sister, and a member of the community. Because what, what's going to happen is when, if the arrangement of the marriage is agreed upon, they will become engaged, which is basically meaning that they're legally married. And then about a year later, the husband, Joseph in this case, is going to go and he's going to go get his bride from her family. He's going to take his bride back to a place within his father's house that he had built onto his father's house. And he was going to take her from there and then she's going to come over into his house and they would be together always. It's actually a beautiful picture of what Jesus has promised us, that I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, he says to the church's bride. And I will come back to get you, he says. But that's a story for another day. Um, So Joseph... He's engaged with Mary's dad. And there's this agreement that, that we're going to go ahead and get married. So the dowry goes to Mary's family. And this is the betrothal process. And this is the first stage of the process. At this point where the dowry is received and they agree, yes, we are going to be married. Uh, and the families agree there. They are legally married. The only thing that can break them apart is divorce. That's the only thing that could break them apart. Um, And divorce could happen by the husband, either in a public setting or in a private setting. That comes into our story in just a minute. Um, But the betrothal period, this year where, where the woman, where the wife was living in her parents' home, and she's waiting for her groom to come and get her and take her back, this was so locked into marriage that if, for example, her husband, Joseph in this case, would have died, she would have received essentially the benefits of a widow. She would have been considered a widow for all intents purposes. Now, so there's two ways you could divorce. And it could happen during this, po- this point. It could happen later. Um, At the second, I talked a little bit about that first stage where they're married, but they're not living together. The second stage of marriage is is the state of consummation. It involves the groom coming for his bride. There's a marriage feast, a celebration with the family and the community. And and during this time, the marriage would be consummated physically between the couple. And after this, the, the bride would move into the house of the groom. And this second stage would be a surprise uh, for the bride in particular. The groom would come with his friends and his family. They would have the wedding feast and they would party and all this kind of stuff for a week. What happens in our story then is after his mother Mary was engaged to Joseph. In other words, she's already betrothed. She's, She's married legally, but she's not married in all the sense of being married. It was discovered that before they came together, that's talking about the physical union, the second stage of marriage in the ancient period, that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And so here you go, okay, because this this inserts a really problematic thing. Joseph essentially has three options, all right? The the scripture says that, um, that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, But it says in verse 19, So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decides to divorce her secretly. He's got three options. The first option is this. 
if the child is not his, then he could go ahead and divorce her. And he could divorce her one of two ways. The public way would be to gather the people of the town together. And there would be an official decree of divorce and evidence presented and all this kind of stuff. And there would oftentimes be a, the, the woman dragged through, um, not physically dragged, but just kind of dragged through this in a very, very public way. Shame would be a part of this. Disgrace would be a part of this. Um, there would be a public display that Joseph could engage in because Joseph, the text says, is a righteous person, which, which means when you look at him, you're going, yeah, he, he, he walks after God. He does all the, the right godly things that we would expect a young man of his stage to do. He could have legally divorced her publicly. The second option is to di- divorce her secretly. What that involves is instead of going to the whole community, he goes to just two or three witnesses. This is his way of dissolving the marriage without it becoming as much of a big public shame. The third option is that he could take Mary as his wife. Now, if, if the child was his, that would likely be the option they would go down. But remember, Joseph is a righteous man. He's a man who has sought to follow God in all the different avenues of his life. And as a righteous person, what should he do? The scripture says that he did not want to disgrace her or to to make a display of her publicly. And so he decides to divorce her secretly because he knows this child is not his. Sure, he has a reputation, but he doesn't want even the public, I am standing up for my reputation, to be so great that it would publicly disgrace Mary. Joseph decides to divorce her secretly. But just imagine for a moment, what do you think Joseph felt? What are the feelings and the emotions? He's righteous. The community sees him as, this is Joseph. Like he's, he's the top of his class. He, he's the one who always has the right answer. He's the one where you look at his character and you go, man, he just is, his life is modeled after a heart walking after God. And now Joseph, who's married to Mary, finds out that his spouse is pregnant and he knows that the kid is not his. You can imagine the hurt and the anger and the spite, maybe the shock and the disbelief, this whole wave of emotions that goes through. And he's trying to figure out what's the next right thing to do. Now, Mary, I would presume, also has a good reputation in Luke's gospel, it says that, um, that the angel comes to her and he says, Greetings to you, O favored one. Mary likely was also a person, I believe, who has a heart after God and walks after God and seeks after God. And the angel comes to her and the angel says, I want you to be the one who bears the Messiah. And she says these words in Luke's gospel, May it be to me according to your word. We, we catch a heart of Mary here because Mary says basically, God, I'm willing to do whatever you call me to do, even if it means this. Joseph over here has been like, God, I'm, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. God, would you reveal it to me and let me, let me be a part of your plan? But here, Joseph's heart's broken. For all he knows, there's 
been something that has gone on without his knowledge, and he is hurt and in disbelief and in real despair. Now, it's interesting. Joseph is called righteous before the Lord intervenes in this story. He doesn't want to put Mary to shame. Um, I think he understood that women could suffer great shame and contempt by the community for such an act. Uh, Think, for example, of the religious leaders who bring the woman caught in adultery to Jesus in John 8. They're ready to stone her. And they have that whole conversation in John 8. What Joseph could have done, especially with a public divorce, is he could have cleared his name and he could have gotten the dowry back, all that financial investment that he had given in a, as a part of this agreement for marriage. But Joseph resolves. I actually love how it says um, in verse 20, but after he had considered these things. Right? That word consider there means to ponder. It means to ponder well. This wasn't an emotional decision that he just reacted to. He considered what is the righteous thing to do. And for Joseph, he had concluded the righteous thing to do is to honor Mary as best as I can without saying it was me because it wasn't. Joseph is acting as a righteous or just or tzaddik man. This, this idea of this could also be as a godly man. I think he walks with God and even though he doesn't understand all of God's ways, he has this compassion that informs how he lives. Even to the point of being in this really, really challenging situation, he's willing not to go the full hilt to get back what is rightfully his and to clear his name in the most public way. But I love in verse 20 because God intervenes. It says, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream. Have you ever had a weird dream? <laughs> I had a weird dream this last week. Um, I, I had had a conversation uh, with a friend earlier that day about um, them buying a pickup truck, right? So what did I dream about that night? I dreamed about a pickup truck. <laughs> and this truck was in my dream, and I woke up right before I was going to get the keys. <laughs> it's such a weird dream. Um, dreams are often ways in the Scripture that God uses to reveal himself to people. He doesn't do it all the time, nor should we take every dream as saying that is from the Lord. What I love about this is, is that God knows Joseph's decision, and he reveals himself to him in a dream. The dream is not authoritative. In, in fact, w- when I've had the opportunity to travel around the world, one of the things I've learned is that, especially in the Muslim world, dreams and visions are very much a part of many Muslims coming to Christ. Uh, a book that you can read is by Dr. Nabil Qureshi, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. He talks about how God used visions and dreams in his life to bring him to faith and Jesus the Messiah. He also talks about how they don't replace God's revelation of his word. But there's something that causes him to think, what is going on here? And God, what are you wanting from me? Joseph has this dream. And in this dream, the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Assumingly, he's been afraid to take Mary as his wife. And the angel says, because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. 
She will give birth to a son. You are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So he basically comes to Joseph. And the what of this is, Joseph, I don't want you to be afraid. What is in her is a working of God. It's been conceived by the Holy Spirit. But here's the why, Joseph. Here's why this matters. She's going to give birth to a son. I want you to name him Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from his sin, from their sins. Now, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. If Joseph took Mary as his wife, here's what he's essentially doing. He's essentially taking responsibility for the child. If he marries Mary, what he's doing publicly is saying, yeah, that's my child. Yeah, I know that we were only in the first stage of the wedding time. We had not yet reached the celebration and the consummation of the marriage. Yeah, I know. We acted outside of what is proper for our community and our culture and God's working in our life. For Joseph to say, I'm going to name him Jesus, is not a small thing. Back um, in, in Genesis, in Genesis 2, it talks about how God gives dominion and authority over Adam, over, over the world, humankind over the world, over all the animals. And so when they go and, and they start to name these animals, the man names the animal. And what he's doing is he's taking responsibility for it. Biblically speaking, to name something is to take responsibility for it. All right? We had three kids. We have, th- we have three kids. Um, when we had each of them, we were like, what's the name going to be? So we'd come, we, we'd, we'd go through that whole name game and all that kind of stuff and try and figure out, all right, what's the right name for this kid? By naming our kids, we were taking responsibility for them in a biblical sense. Joseph, for him to say his name is Jesus, even by the command of the Lord, is Joseph saying, I'm taking responsibility for this young one. And in a culture where he's known as a righteous person, where his walk is something that is after God, people are going to look at him and they're going to say, I thought he was righteous. Why did he act outside of God's design and God's plan? But here's the amazing thing about what it means to be righteous. Obeying God's call is what righteousness looks like, especially when obedience goes beyond human common sense. See, see, God is calling Joseph to a radical trust. He's not calling him to care about the social stigma that's going to come to him and Mary because of this. He, he, he's not calling them to preserve their name first. He's calling them to trust He's calling them to see with eyes of faith, to be willing and ready to receive dishonor from society so long as it's to faithfully follow God's leading in his life. Just stop and think about that for a moment. What things has God called you and I to that we might say, but God, if I do that, it will result in this. There's some hard things that I imagine you can think about right now in your own specific life. Decisions that, that you have made, that you're like, man, I took a lot of flack for that, but that really, I was just trying to be obedient. Especially in the culture in which we live in today, where the name of Christ is not very well honored in every circumstance. You can be like, why would you treat that person that way? Don't you know that they, yeah, but they're a person made in the image of God. 
So I treat them in accordance with being made in the image of God. Why did you not blow up at this person because they said or they did that? Well, because God's word calls me to be patient and to be kind and to demonstrate love. I love here in verses 22 and 23, it says this. Now all this took place to fulfill what, this, what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And he goes on to quote from Isaiah chapter 7. See, the virgin will become pregnant, give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel. It's interesting to me, and this is a Jeremy thing. You don't necessarily have to pick this up. Still working through this in my mind a little bit. But, but it's interesting to me that he comes to Joseph and he talks to him about this child is going to be born of a virgin. And then um, Matthew records for us years later, by the way, this is in keeping with God's promise and God's plan. Joseph, being a righteous person, I think he knew his Bible well. I think when God revealed to him what he says in this what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. You are to give birth to a son. I, I think Joseph has perhaps in mind here, oh yeah, there's this promise of a deliverer. There's this promise that Emmanuel, God, will come to dwell with his people. There's a promise in God's word. I think Joseph knows that there's going to be a virgin birth. Now, if you go back and you look at the Isaiah context here, th there's a couple of different things going on. We're not going to look at those in detail, but there's essentially two promises. There's one given to the future. There's this prophetic promise of a virgin birth. But then secondly, there's a whole context in which God is talking about in Isaiah chapter 7. You can go investigate that if you want to help. If you want some help walking through that Isaiah 7 passage, I've got some great resources for you. I think Matthew inserts these two verses to highlight something that's very important. Jo Jesus was not an accident in God's plan. The manner of his birth of a virgin was prophesied 700 years before this time. As I said last week, God is never late. God is never early. He's always on time and he always keeps his promises. And Matthew is underlining this point again in his gospel that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. Even more, God's plan was not to just work on humanity to make us better. It was to step into it, to step in among us, to make a redemption possible because there was no redemption that could be um, achieved without the right sacrifice for sin. Isaiah 7 makes its great entrance here because it's promising. It, God, God is reminding his people, and he's reminding us today that in the midst of this dream and this revelation from God, God is doing something, and it's not haphazard. Sometimes it's easy to look at our lives and say, man, I just don't get how all these pieces fit together. Sometimes in the course of years or decades, we begin to see oh, maybe that's what God was up to all along. You can imagine for Joseph and for Mary, willing to accept the shame of the community upon them for this, even though they are righteous people walking after God, that comes with a bit of struggle. And yet, God's promise and God's plan is bigger than them, but it involves them. I think 
one of the reasons that these details about the Emmanuel prophecy is here is to say to Matthew's audience, by the way, yeah, this Jesus, this is how it happened, and you can go back 700 years prior and know that God will keep his word. I think it's also included because God wanted to reveal himself to Joseph that he didn't eat too much hummus or falafel the night before. In fact, his dream was something of God's initiative to say, this may look like craziness on the outside, but Joseph, I'm still in control. And guess what? I'm going to call you into something and it's going to be challenging, but I want you to be the father of the Messiah on earth. I want you to raise this boy with every last day that God gives you and teach him what it means to hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Now, Jesus does this perfectly, so I'm not sure what exactly Joseph taught him, but at least Joseph modeled for him what it means to be righteous in a world where unrighteousness abounds. So what does Joseph do? We have this promise of Emmanuel, this, 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 this thing that God is with us. And we come to verse 24 and it says, When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. I love that it does not say that he pondered this a little while longer. God revealed himself to him and Joseph obeyed. He obeyed. He did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He married her, all right? Which means he completed the second stage of the marriage process, which means the whole community would have gone, but it wasn't time yet. Why did you marry already? Oh, she's pregnant with child. He married her. But then the scripture says, but he did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son. And he named him Jesus. He named him Jesus. Now, the amazing thing about righteousness is this. Sometimes, like I mentioned, the word righteousness is used to describe the actions of God. Sometimes it's used to describe the actions of people. For Joseph to be a righteous person does not mean he is perfect. It means that he has a heart after God. That's all it means. Joseph demonstrates this heart for God by trusting God's word not by walking in fear, but rather choosing to walk by faith. He trusts the angel's message in the revelation of God through the prophet Isaiah, and he does what God tells him. He names the baby Jesus, which comes, uh, it's the word Yeshua. It, it comes from a Hebrew word that means God saves. Joseph's righteousness is not focused on being perfect. In, in fact, true righteousness was never something that could be attained apart from Jesus. Righteousness for Joseph looked like this. Obeying God's call, even when it went beyond human common sense. Scripture reminds us that there is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one of us that is perfectly holy before God, except by the power of God in covering our sin. Romans talks about it this way in chapter 5. It, de it describes how people become righteous, and that's by being declared righteous by Christ's blood through the death of his son. 
That's the only real way to be righteous in this like legal sense. The, the, the only way to stand before God and God to call you or I righteous is to say the only way, Father, I'm righteous is because your son Jesus came to this earth and he lived a perfect sinless life and he died on the cross and the, the, the blood that he spilled on Calvary pays the penalty for my sin and his resurrection gives me life. The, the reason why the Christian faith is one of hope is because it's one where we are utterly broken except for God's working in our life. You know, what, what's unique about the Christian faith is that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he gives life to all who call upon his name in faith and in trust. You could ask yourself a couple questions. Am I a person who takes God at his word? And maybe you've never entered into a relationship by faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. I want to invite you to that today. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other way to make yourself right with God. And I love it because I know how broken I am. And there's no way I could dig myself out of the hole of sin in my life were it not for a Savior who came down to this earth to dwell amongst us. That is the hope of Christmas, friends. In the midst of all the story, the amazing story of God's working through Mary and Joseph and, and angels and shepherds and wise men, which we'll look at next week. Uh, in the midst of all this, God makes redemption possible through his son. Are we people who take God's, God at his word? It's called faith, by the way. That when we were helpless, Christ died for us, sinners. And that by being declared righteous, we can be reconciled or made right with God. I'll ask you one other question. Do I manage my own life? Or do I obey my Father in heaven even when it doesn't make sense? See... The call for the person who doesn't have a relationship with God is, will you trust God? The, the call for a person who does have a relationship with God is, will I live as though what God has said is actually true and it actually matters in my life? That it actually matters to this world. That when God says this, no matter the cost, I walk in this. The amazing thing that I am learning and growing in is that it can be really easy to say, God, I just need to become better. But that's wholly insufficient because God looks at his children and he says, I love you. I love you and I've given you everything you need to walk after me. Because he didn't just come to be raised from the grave, to go back to the Father, and to leave us on our own. In fact, Jesus says, I have to go away because there's someone I'm going to send to be with you. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the one who walks with you and helps you follow God. For the Christian today, he is our hope. He is our life. 
He is our truth. Without him, Scripture says, we can do nothing. But we do have to say, God, I want your will in my life, even when it doesn't make sense. Would you pray with me, please? God, it is so easy, so easy in my own life to say, God, you wouldn't do that. That just doesn't make any sense. But God, you call us to radical trust. Even now this morning, God, many of us in this room are faced with situations at work or at home where we're, where we're faced with this question of, will we trust your word and live by your word and trust the power of your spirit to walk with us into whatever setting you place before us? Or will we walk in our own strengths? God, I pray that we would be a people who would not walk in our own strength, but who would rest and rely upon the goodness and grace of God and the power of the Spirit for every good, righteous, holy, Godward act. God, as we get ready to celebrate Christmas this week, um, we, we have no idea what tomorrow holds for our life. But we know, God, that you meet us there. You are with us. God, I, I pray that you would give us, especially over these next days, just a, a deeper sense of your leading in our life. More than anything, God, we want to be faithful. We, we, we can't manage success by the world's standards. We, we, we can't manage a lot of things in life. But God, we can say, as, as so many people throughout the course of human history have said, here we are, God. Would you use us? Would you work through us for the glory of Jesus and for the redemption of the world? Thank you, God, for meeting us here, giving us life in your Son. And now as we, as we prepare to sing for a few more minutes, God, we just want to worship. We just want to be reminded and, and declare that you are holy, righteous, and good. Thank you, Father, for meeting us here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.